Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being all that we need. Lord, we come today gathered in your name to worship you, to honor you, to adore you, to praise you, and to call you master, to call you king. Lord, let those here today that do not know you be touched by your presence, be touched by your mercy, be touched by your love, so that they may be interested and open to hearing from you, to knowing that there's a better way to serve a master who wants to love us with what kind of love it is, a love that's bigger than all of our understanding. We thank you for the gift of your son, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm Kurt Williams. I was here back in July and I had the opportunity to speak to you in the Sunday morning services back then, and I'm here back today to do the parenting meetings this evening at 5. It doesn't really matter, like Randy said, if you have a kids that are in diapers, if you have kids that are, you know, 8 or 18, what we're going to talk about today is kind of timeless, some principles, some foundational things to, to put into your home. Uh, this comes from uh, my experiences of being a father of, of seven children and 27 years of working with 2,200 kids in our homes, uh, residential homes that we operate in Houston. I, I wanted to share before your pastor shares this morning, just a, a brief testimony. He's going to be talking about facing challenges having a testimony of being able to face challenges. And I know that at Youth Reach, we kind of start off with some pretty rough material. We're trying to produce tremendous, amazing men. We want men of character and depth and honor. And we're starting off with delinquents and kids that have robbed stores and stolen cars. And so we're, we're, we're starting with some rough material. So that's a massive challenge. Back in 98, I, I was a camp pastor at a camp. And I, the camp pastor or the, the youth pastor of this church was Randy Riggins. And Randy had told me that there was a pretty hard kid that came. He, he mainly came to escape the troubles of his home. He was sitting on the back row the first night. I walked back there, tried to engage him. He wouldn't even, you know, respect me enough to give me an answer when I said hello. But each day, each night, I'd spot him in different places. I'd try to sit with him, try to talk with him. And it was just ice, a lot of anger, a lot of damage. And there's a, you know, a point where you, you just have to kind of leave it with them. So toward the end of the week, I gave him my business card. I said, here's my number. That's my cell number. I'll answer it any time, whenever you're ready for help. I said, we'll try to help you. Well, a good bit of time goes by, and one day he called the number. And he said, I've got to get out of this town. I've got to get out of this home. I have to have a new chance, a fresh start. And so he came into our program, and... You know, when he came in, he brought all that baggage with him. He wanted to start fights and he was full of anger. But one night he had that opportunity where he exchanged the pink slip of his life, the ownership papers of his life. He gave them over to Christ. He surrendered. And many of us can surrender little things in our lives. But, man, when you do what he did, it shows what a radical thing God is when he gets a hold of your life. This young man... Uh, he finished his schooling there at Youth Reach, and then he applied to YWAM, and he got in there, and then he went to Cambodia on his mission trip, came back, sold his car, sold guitars, sold everything he had, and took a small duffel bag and went back. This past April, I got on a plane in Houston and flew to L.A., and from L.A. to Seoul, Korea, and from Seoul to Phnom Penh, Cambodia, and walk out of the airport and see this sea of native faces, and in the middle of it, is that one white boy that was so angry with his hair down in his face when I first saw him. And he brings me in and I, the next morning we 
tour the orphanage and I meet the children he's caring for. And then I, I go out to the feeding programs and I see people that are desperately, desperately poor who he lives and dies with every day. That's the challenge to see the impossible and recognize that through God, all things are possible. Pastor. Well, we're in Mark chapter six, beginning with the first verse. Challenge. How do you handle your opportunities determines your testimony. Uh, we all have challenges in life, whether they be physical, emotional, spiritual, social, uh, whether they be financial. We're all in challenging situations. Maybe you're challenged at home uh, with a spouse or with children. Maybe you're challenged in your neighborhood, at your work, with your boss or with uh, co-workers. Uh, maybe you're medically challenged. Whatever your situation, we, we all have challenges that we deal with. And the truth of it is, on the two extremes, there is the run away from the challenge and there's the embrace the challenge. Now, it's not always that simple, but the truth of it is a lot of times we're in situations and challenges that we cannot run away from. So the question becomes, how will we <clears throat> allow God to use that in our lives? And will we allow that to be a situation that we shine forth His glory, that we grow, and that God uh, uses it to help us produce a testimony to His light? Uh, let's look here in Mark chapter 6, and you'll see three different scenarios where challenges were given and how they respondedly different. Or how each of, in each scenario, there's a different, different response. First, we see Jesus here going back to his hometown of Nazareth, a small town. Uh, scholars say it was anywhere from 200 to at most 1,000 people. So it's a pretty small town. It's a, a very blue-collar area. <clears throat> There's not, uh, it's not an educated class. It was not respected uh, by those in Jerusalem and in larger cities. And so that was a reputation, that it was, uh, that it was esteemed as a place of, of ignorance. And there wouldn't be much come out of a place called Nazareth. We know that even Nathaniel makes that claim. And so here's Jesus coming back to his hometown. And we know from Luke chapter 4 that right after Jesus had experienced his time in the desert, his temptations in the desert, the first place that he goes to is Nazareth. He gives them an opportunity, and he stands up in the synagogue, and he proclaims, or he reads from Isaiah 61, and, and proclaims that that prophecy is fulfilled in him. And they're so angry that they kick him out, and they literally take him to a cliff to throw him off, but he walks through the middle of them. <clears throat> so his message has not gone well. Now, we don't know the exact timeline, but somewhere between a year to two years, maybe 18 months later, Jesus is here again. He's come back to give his hometown, so to speak, a second chance. He went away from there and he came to his hometown of Nazareth and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? What is this wisdom given to him? And how are these miracles performed by his hands? They're amazed. They're asking the question, this is, this is the guy that grew up with us. This is the kid who grew up with us. Where did he learn this? He went to the same school we did. He hasn't studied under some rabbi. Where is he getting? And the Greek word literally indicates divine wisdom. Where did he get this divine wisdom? Where did he get this power to perform miracles? They've heard the stories. But the truth of it is, 
is that he's just come from Capernaum, and the synagogue ruler there is Jairus. We know Jairus is singing his praises because he's healed Jairus' daughter. He's literally brought her back from the dead. And so there are certainly stories, there are certainly messages going out. The synagogue ruler probably hears, it's not much of a stretch to say he's heard of, of Jesus' miracles, of his wisdom, and he invites him back with this reputation and with this understanding. He allows Jesus to speak again here in Nazareth. But the people are not so impressed. They say, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't he one just like us that simply works with his hands? Who builds chairs and who builds... matter of fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian, said Jesus uh, produced and created plows. That's what he did primarily. It, it was a very common profession. And not only that, he's the son of Mary. Now... We wouldn't take that as a slight, but what he's saying here in a patriarchal society, your reputation always came from your father. You would have been the son of Joseph or the son of whoever. And your father's integrity, your father's name, that was highly esteemed, highly established. And that's how you were known. But you see, they had grown up with Jesus. And they'd been there and, and they did the math. Let's see. Jesus, you were born, let's see, let's see, your mom and dad got married in June, and you're born in December. Um, you maybe don't really know who your father is. That's literally what he's saying there. This is Mary's son. You don't even really know who your father is. We see that there's, at a minimum, uh, a, a jealousy issue going on here. And the brothers, his brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, his half-brothers, and his sisters are with us. They're all here. And by the way, this is a great proof text that Jesus had brothers and sisters, by the way. Mary had other children. But nevertheless, I <clears> said, <throat> they're all with us. You know, I'm sure there were a lot of them. They're, they're, they're adults by now. They grew up with Jesus. And don't you know it was hard in the neighborhood of Jesus being compared to Jesus? You know, the other kid, can't you be like Jesus? You know, I mean, it had to be heck for, for the brothers and sisters, you know, because we know he was without sin. He wasn't teaching or doing any miracles. We know that doesn't start until his ministry starts at age 30. So he's just been the perfect kid. And probably in the neighborhood, Jesus, let's get him to go. He won't do. He never does anything like that with us. I mean, there was probably a real jealousy already. And these people have never probably left home. And so the Bible says this. So they were offended by him. He offends them. He stands up and makes this proclamation that he, quote, is probably the Messiah, or that he is the Messiah, according to Isaiah 61 and Luke chapter 4. And he's performed these miracles, and he has spoken these words. And, and now he continues... Uh, to make these claims, and I don't know, I'm, I'm offended. I mean, he didn't go to a better school than me. He didn't have a better teacher than me. And just because he was so good. And they're offended. Many people today are still offended by Jesus. They're offended by his claims. They're offended that he says, I am the way, truth, and the life, that no man comes but the Father through me. And some who follow Christ are offended by his claims. When he makes statements like, 
we should love our enemies? Are you serious? Oh, that sounds good theoretically, but what about if it's really somebody at work that's out to get me? What if it's really he wants me to love the Muslims who are in the Mideast? Is that what he wants me to do? I just like I'd like to take that part out. That's what most of us think. I mean, we're offended that he would ask something of that nature. And that's what Jesus does, isn't he? is offensive on one hand, and yet there's something incredibly attractive about him on the other hand. And we'll see more about that as we go. We're attracted to Jesus, but most of us are attracted to the parts we want to be attracted, and we want to say, I don't buy into the rest of that. And many of them were probably the same. And they're offended by the statements that he makes. And then Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown, among his relatives and his household. So he was not able to do any miracles there, except that he laid his hand on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Jesus it doesn't say that he could not. It says that he does not. He, he, he could not other than there are some people there. And basically the picture is it's not making any difference. They already heard of them. Then they see them and they still say, I don't believe. As a matter of fact, the word used there is unbelief. It's not that I have a little faith or that I don't understand or that I doubt. It's that I choose to reject. See, that's the beautiful thing about coming, for Christ, coming to Christ. We see a story in Mark chapter 9 where a man comes to Jesus to have him healed, to have his son delivered from a demonic spirit. And he says, if you can do this, Jesus, and he said, if I can, he said, all things are possible if you just simply believe. And the man says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Here's the beautiful thing. It's not the quantity of faith that we have, it's that we have faith. It's because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us that He holds the power to save and forgive. And so healing, salvation, blessings are not dependent upon our quantity of faith, but upon the goodness of Christ, upon the divinity of Christ. And even though we doubt, He is willing to help us with our unbelief. But in this particular instance, it's not a doubt, it's an offense. It's a complete rejection. I don't believe. And usually we see in Scripture that the people are amazed by Jesus' miracles, and they're amazed by His teaching. But in this particular incident, it's reversed. And the Bible says that He is amazed by their unbelief. He's amazed because the miracles have been given and performed, the wisdom and the teaching has been given, the fulfillment of the prophecies, and yet we simply choose not to believe. That's one way to handle a challenge, the spiritual challenge of Jesus Christ. And yet here's another. And now he was going around the villages in the circuit teaching and he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing 
for the road except a walking stick, no bread, no traveling bag, which was actually a beggar's bag that philosophers and teachers would take and, and request money. No money in their belts. They were to wear sandals, but not put on an extra shirt. And then he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place does not welcome you and the people refuse to listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Jesus says, I want to send you out. You've been with me for a year, year and a half. I want you to go out and I want you to preach the gospel of repentance. I want you to tell them that the prophecies have been fulfilled. I want you to share the good news. And he sent them out in two. Men who were not educated, men who were not esteemed in that society. And he said, I want you to go out with basically just what you have. Don't go back home. Don't go get you some money. Don't get you some food. I want you to just go out and I want you to go preach. Certainly, this was for an evangelistic short period of time, probably just a few days, maybe a week at the most. But I want you to go and I want you to trust me. And I'm going to meet your basic needs. You'll be taken care of. And when people reject the word, then here's what I want you to do. I want you, a very common expression, I want you to take your sandals and I want you in front of them to wipe the dust from the sandals. And it was to give them a visual reminder, a visual understanding that you are rejecting the message that's been given to you. I want you to understand that, you know, we're, we're not going to bring it here again. We're, we're giving you, this is your opportunity. Receive it. So are you sure you want this to happen? And so they would see that visual and they would know the seriousness of what they were doing. And the Bible says, so they went out and preached that people should repent. And they were driving out many demons and anointing the sick with oil and healing them. So we see the challenge taken. and We see the testimony that is produced. And then the story of John. King Herod heard of this because Jesus' name had become well known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why supernatural powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and still others said he's like a prophet, like one of the prophets. And when Herod heard of this, he said, John, the one I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and to chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wives. So Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted him killed. But she could not because Herod was in awe of John and he was protecting him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. Here's John the Baptist, rugged, rough, living in the woods, living uh, wearing camel-haired clothing, that wasn't popular back then, that wasn't at Neiman. Marcus, that was uh, just kind of homemade clothing, um, eating locusts and wild honey, living in the wilderness, preaching a gospel of repentance. Here's this rough, rugged man who's preaching, and uh, he, Herod, who is the Tetrarch, he takes on the title king, but really he was simply a governor. Herod decides after visiting his brother Philip, that he likes he likes Philip's wife, and Philip's wife likes him. So they both leave their spouse, they divorce their spouse, and they get married, which was against Levitical law. And so John speaks out and said, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is sin, and you shouldn't have done that. And no one else is speaking out, and so Herodias... Uh, being angered by this and convinces Herod to have him put in prison. So Herod places him in prison. And while he's in prison, Herod 
is just, the Bible says, in awe, which simply means he has deep respect. Because John doesn't fit in his paradigm. He's got a paradigm that goes something like this. Look, I've gotten into my position. I've got many brothers and sisters. And the way I've gotten to my position is by literally stabbing people in the back. I've climbed the ladder. I've bribed. I've done whatever it's taken to get to this place, to this point in life, and to get this position And anybody else would do the same given the opportunity. It's just that I'm ruthless and smart enough and I've made it happen. It's what everybody wished they could do, but it's what I've done. But then you've got John the Baptist who's preaching from a completely different worldview. And he's thinking he's not motivated by money. He's not he's not afraid of my threats that he'll be in prison, that I'll have him killed. He just keeps speaking the truth. And the Bible said he's an awe. The Bible goes on and uses this term. It says he recognizes that he's a holy man. And when Herod heard him, he would be disturbed and yet would hear him gladly. He would be perplexed, puzzled is the Greek word there. that He, he would hear it and he would agree with it. But yet he had this other life he was living and he couldn't live both of them. So he's perplexed. He's puzzled. He's disturbed. I hear what he's saying and I'm drawn to this message and I'm hearing it and I'm convicted. But on the other hand, this is the life I've created. This is the status. This is the economic standard I'm used to living in. And I don't know what to do with that because I can't live like this and accept what he's saying. And it perplexed him. It disturbed him greatly. Still disturbs people today, does it? When you have a worldview that says purity before marriage and fidelity within marriage and a life of holiness and a life of righteousness. And if I do that, I'm drawn to Jesus, but, but I'm also drawn to this life where I'm in control and where I decide what's important and I live for myself and my money is mine and my time is mine and my life is mine. But over here... I have to give it to him. And I, although I'm drawn on certain, in certain respects, I'm perplexed. And so many do nothing, which is what Herod did. Literally, it's interesting because he was in prison and Herod must have been bringing him out of prison because it's unlikely that Herod would go to the jail cell every day and sit in a musty, wet, damp, dirty, stinky place. He'd literally bring him in the courts and let him talk to him. And convict him. And then send him away. And his wife Herodias is going, you've got to get rid of him. Have him killed. He He's speaking out against him. If we can get rid of him, then we will be at peace. We need to send a message, a strong message, so that no one else stands up. We've got a beautiful life here together. And I don't appreciate him condemning me for it. Get rid of him. But Herod wouldn't do it because he knew he was a holy man. He knew there was something about John that was different than any other rabbi or priest he had ever heard. He spoke the truth and he was willing to suffer for that sake. The Bible says, Now an opportune time came on his birthday when Herod gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and leading men in the Galilee. And when Herodias, his own daughter, came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. So he swore oaths to her. Whatever you ask, will I give to you up to half my kingdom? And then she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? 
She's a teenage girl. You've got to realize this is Herod's niece. Remember, he's taken uh, Herodias from his brother. And now this is, her, her, this is Philip's daughter. And she dances. She's a teenage girl. He's been drinking too much. They're having a party. All his boys are there. All the noblemen, all the leaders, they're there. He's putting on a show. He tells his niece, his teenage niece, Hey, what do you want? You've done a marvelous job. These guys are so impressed. I'm impressed. What can I do for you? Being a teenage girl, she goes to her mother and she goes, Mom, what should I ask for? And he said, Tell them you want the head of John the Baptist. A rather morbid request. And so, she says, John the Baptist's head. And immediately, he, she hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter right now. And though the king was deeply distressed because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to refuse her. And the king immediately sent for the executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. So they went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. I'm sure she was wondering... Maybe I should have asked for a car, but nevertheless, or a chariot or something. And then the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard about it, they came and removed the corpse and placed him in a tomb. <laughs> you know, here was the amazing thing Herodias knew about her husband. She knew he was convicted. She knew he was drawn to John the Baptist, but she knew that his ego was even bigger. So Herod has the opportunity to have a life transformation to possess what John has, and he can't seem to get there. And time goes on, and Herodias is looking for the opportunity, and she plays upon his egotistical sympathies. She puts him in a place, she finds him in a place where he cannot say no. And so she takes advantage of that, and Herod loses the opportunity. And we see later on when Herod, Jesus comes before Herod, that Herod has a little to do with him. He doesn't talk and he just sends him on. His heart is so hardened by this point. He missed the opportunity. He was challenged. He was challenged by a man that was like none other, the Bible says. And he chose to ignore it. He chose to just wait. And finally, John's gone. And the, the conviction's in his heart. But eventually, he's so hardened that when Jesus comes before him himself... It makes little difference to him. The testimony of John. You know, the truth of it is, we either have a testimony somewhat like John or somewhat like Herod. We live our own life, do our own thing and say, I'm good. Or we submit to Christ and we submit to his cost. Let's look at the life of John for just a moment. He was a common man, rugged. We know that because he lived in the woods, because of his diet, because of his clothing. He also was a man with a temper. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, he calls out the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He said, who called you brood of vipers and snakes to come and to hear this message of repentance? For the wrath of God comes upon you. I mean, it's not something you say with a smile on your face. I mean, he's probably angry when he says it. He, he has, he's a man of doubts. He's in prison. He's been in prison for a while, and he's been cut off. He's not seeing Jesus, and nothing's really happening. And he has some doubts, and he tells one of his followers, he said, would you go and ask Jesus if he's the one? Is he the Messiah? Is he the Christ, or should we wait for another? 
Hey, we can all relate to that, can't we? We all have doubts. And the question is not, well, do we have doubts? But what do we do with our doubts? Do we let them drive us to the foundations of the truth of Christ? Do we study to show ourselves approved? Do we seek to know the truth? Or do we just say, well, I doubt it. It must not be right. Or I've got some real questions here. John had questions. Herod had questions. Herod had doubts. And what he did with those is he just passed, glossed over them. I'll just do nothing with them. I'm not going to make a step because i got some doubts. It doesn't fit in my worldview. But John was a real man. He had doubts. had a temper. He was a common, ordinary, rugged guy. He was alone. He was alone in prison. He was alone when he preached a lot of the time. He was lonely. Probably struggled. Probably emotionally struggled. Maybe even struggled with some depression to the point that his whole life had been about preparing the way for Christ. He had proclaimed Christ, and now, but now he's in prison in a dark, deep cell with bad food. He's wondering, is this right? Yet he was a man of courage. A man of courage because he's still determined to live by his principles, to live out his faith in Christ. And he defied the king. And he's in jail because he defines him because he keeps on. If he would have said, I'm sorry, I'm sure he would have gone and Herod would have thought he's just like all the others. He stood for what he believed. He was a man of commitment. His very name and title, John the Baptist. He wasn't, you know, I used to hear that when I was a kid. He was the original Baptist. That didn't come until about 1800 years later, by the way. But he was a man who baptized, who preached a gospel of repentance and stood for the truth. He was a man of devotion who said he was not willing, he was not even, uh, he was not even worthy to unloosen the straps of the feet of Jesus the Messiah. And he was a man not only who was committed, but he was, he was a man who lived out his testimony. He was a man who chose to believe. He was a man who chose to be confident in his conviction. Confident in the promise that God has given, just like the promise that God has given us. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He was a man of purpose, and his purpose was found in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, where the Bible says that he was a witness to testify about the light. He was the way before the light, to shine light upon the Messiah who would come. And that's what produced his testimony the light from in him. You see, there were many others who had titles in John's day. There were many others that had titles in Jesus' day, but the testimony is what we remember today, isn't it? You know, you go back to Jairus last week where we talked about Jairus, who was the synagogue ruler, the synagogue leader of whom people esteemed and desired their sons to be like. And Jairus had the title. But the woman who had been ostracized from the temple, who had not been allowed to worship in the synagogue, who had not allowed to touch anyone, who had to say, I'm unclean, when she came within ten feet of another individual. She was healed by Jesus. She had the testimony. The disciples had the testimony. The Romans had the title. They were in charge. They had the authority. They had the titles. But the disciples, who most of them were fishermen and blue-collar workers, they had the testimony. Herod had the title. The Tetrarch, the king, he's got the title. People know who he is. People know what that term means. 
But John the Baptist, he has the testimony. Pilate, he had the title. He was the ruler over that, that area right there. The highest authority in Judea in that area. And the real testimony that we remember is Jesus. His suffering, His death, His burial, His resurrection. That's the testimony that changed the world. So what are you working for today? Are you spending your life trying to get a title? Trying to get a something fixing on the front of your name? A position so that people will think you're somebody? Maybe you have that title and you like to be called that title. Unfortunately, God's not really impressed with your title. Regardless of how many degrees or what your title or your position is. What's going to matter in the end and what really matters today is your testimony. What is your testimony today? The way that we have our testimonies, first of all, we believe in the challenge that has been given to us today. We believe that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete into that day and that, Lord, though I am in a difficult situation, though I am stressed, though I don't understand, though I live with pain, though I live with difficult people, though I am in a financial crisis, I will trust you and I will live by faith. I will recognize my purpose is to shine the light of Christ so that others may see your good works and glorify you in heaven. And I will live out my story. I will live out the testimony of Christ that he came to my life and he has transformed me. And I'm not perfect. I'm like John. I doubt. I got rough edges. I got a temper. But I can tell you this. He has changed my heart and that I choose to live for him. I choose to believe. I want to encourage you to live that testimony out. Maybe this week, you make a point to pray each day for somebody at work that you're really struggling with. And you even pray that God would bless them. Maybe there's somebody in your home that you choose to pray for. You say, you pray God's blessing for them and ask God to give you a new heart. Maybe you choose to serve them. You choose to serve in your community. You choose to serve in this church. Do you realize, Kurt shared a story about a child. Do you realize there are children every Sunday who are in our church whose parents are not here, who have been displaced? And you have the opportunity to pour into their lives, to help them create a testimony like the young man he described who's in Cambodia now. Or you can say, there's something attractive about that, but I'm not going to do anything. And one day, the opportunity is gone. Will you take advantage of the challenge before you today? Dan Rather was over in Calcutta about 30 years ago. He's over there to do a story on Mother Teresa. So he goes to see Mother Teresa and she's got her ward for the dying, her place for those for the dead, the place where people are taken literally off the streets where their relatives or others have dropped them off. They can't do anything for them, and so they're dying. And so she brings them in, the untouchables. She brings them in, and there's just a ward of people. They're everywhere. And Dan Rather said when he went over there, it, he said, I walk in on the first floor, and it just smells so horrible. He said, I, I put a handkerchief over my face. He goes, and it's just... The grossest place I've ever been. People are dying and suffering and moaning and crying. 
He said, it's hot, it's humid, it, it just was unbelievable. He said, I get up to the next floor where Mother Teresa is, and I come up there, and I walk past all these people, and it, I cannot explain to you the smell. And here's Mother Teresa brushing this guy's hair who has some kind of disease, skin disease, and there are flies all over him, and he goes, I want to vomit. He said, I am so sick. He said, I have that handkerchief over my face, and I finally, she finally finishes up with him, and I said, lady... I wouldn't do this for $10 million. And Mother Teresa, with her four foot eleven frame and big blue eyes, looked up at him and said, I wouldn't either. Hey, you know why? Because it's her calling. It's her purpose. It's her testimony. Dan Rather had the title. Mother Teresa has the testimony. What about you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together today. Lord, as we come before your table this morning, as we receive... God, we do so in recognition that you have given us the opportunity to experience transformation through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And God, I pray that you would convict us. For those, Father, who realize they need to take that step toward you and receive you as Lord and Savior, even though they may have doubts, they may have questions, God, I pray that they take that step of faith today and receive you and commit to you. Lord, for those who know you, and on the sideline, I pray, Lord, that get in the game today, they accept the challenge to make an impact, to make a difference. Lord, I pray that as you speak to us, we would respond. If you're here this morning and you want to come for prayer, we'll have people up here that would be happy to pray for you. Uh, I want to invite you to come and allow us to pray for you. If uh, you need prayer for any reason, if you have questions, if you want to receive Christ, whatever you want to do, we invite you to come. And then after a couple of courses, the communion tables are open. You're welcome to come and receive communion on the side or in the front as God leads you, as God leads you to respond. We invite you to respond this morning.